Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 30th, 2018, the packing and cracking edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscure. I'm in Washington, D.C., alone, solo, by myself, just me. But Emily and John are together. I'm not sure about starting this show off with a sigh. So I'm, that seems I'm very end of, of sigh. August. I'm full of sigh. That's Emily Bazelon the- of the New York Times Magazine. John Dickerson of CBS this morning is next to her in New York studio. Hello, guys. You don't, you guys don't have to have size. No, we are the, we are the bridge of size, which is we will bridge from your size to uh, the the greater public with our effervescent happiness, which was materially increased for me when Emily was just walking down the hallway. I wasn't expecting. I thought I'd be alone here, and here I am with Emily, which I realize is exacerbating your feeling of solitude, but. Nevertheless, but we're a chipper and happy we're, together. We're, we're just like hummingbirds in here. Well, I'm self-abnegating enough that your happiness brings me happiness, even though uh, it does it adds to my my sadness. On this week's Gabfest, Don McGahn, White House Counsel, discovers by tweet that he is losing his job. Then, what on earth is going on in North Carolina politics, as its gerrymandered congressional districts are once more declared illegal for the 37th time in the last year. Then the death of John McCain and the president's expectedly classless reaction to it and the political implications of it. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Remember, we're going to Texas, to Austin, Texas, the Capitol factory on Saturday, September 29th. There's going to be a full day of Slate podcast as part of the Texas Tribune Festival. We're going to be there. Trumpcast, Amicus, El Gabfest, The Gist. And you can go to slate.com slash live to get more information. There's still some passes to the, the party where you can mingle with podcast hosts. And and there are still some uh, all-day passes. I think our show, individual tickets to our show are sold out. But you can get an all-access pass that will allow you to see our show as well as all the other great Slate podcasts that are going to be there. Again, slate.com slash live to come see us in Austin on September 29th. So, President Trump... This week, as usual, uh, HR, HR policy is to fire people on Twitter. So he announced on Twitter that Don McGahn, his White House counsel, is going to be leaving his job this fall as soon as Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. So that was news to Don McGahn. I think he probably wasn't shocked. He uh, has a contentious relationship with his boss, but he didn't know that he was uh, had, a, had an end date that had been set, and and he will be out of office. So Emily, McGahn uh, is a really interesting figure. He has played many, many different roles in this White House. What does his departure signal in your mind? Well, I think the most important things he's done, so one of them is the judicial appointments. I mean, he has been one of the most important figures in getting um, a very smooth operation uh, up and running for confirming judges to the lower courts. Trump has, you know, many more um, people through at this point than previous presidents, including Barack Obama. And then we're about to have a second Supreme Court set of confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. And I think McGahn will deservedly take a lot of credit for that um, with the Federalist Society that he is a part of and the conservative movement. And then the second um, most important part of the McGahn tenure is we don't know the significance of yet. And that's what he said to Robert Mueller during Mueller's investigation and how that is going to play out for Trump. And so that just feels to me like this big question mark when you go back and look at McGahn's role in the administration. Either it will turn out that he didn't tell Mueller anything that implicated Trump in those long 30 hours, which is what Trump is claiming, or it will turn out that he gave quite damning information either to protect himself or the institution, and that will change how we view him um, historically. Have you ever not, have you ever spent 30 hours with someone and not ended up telling them everything about, for example, every relationship you've ever had? It's, Absolutely it's, it's not. Impossible. I'm so indiscreet in such settings. I don't know. Maybe if I was being interviewed by the FBI, I would have the sense to keep my mouth shut. But uh, also, you another way to frame that question is, what topic could you talk about for 30 hours and not be really like getting into some serious stuff. I mean, you know, it's like if there was nothing to say, wouldn't it have been over in about like a couple hours? I mean, that's horribly awful speculation, but it does seem to me to be kind of extraordinary. But can can we stick on judges for just a moment? Um, well, first of all, 
let's talk about the just the firing and the way it was done. I mean, so the president said later when he was asked at a press conference that that McGahn was good and they had a good relationship and all. When you fire someone on Twitter, that is a self-swallowing act, which is to say you cannot then later say, oh, he's a great guy. You don't treat great guys that way, that they learn about their own firing on Twitter. It just is. So anyway, I, you don't I, treat people you value that. Way, that's what right? I mean. Yes. You, are you yes. surprised at all that we are finding out that McGann didn't know in advance? Like there is another version of this, which is that they're um, smooth enough to keep that part hidden, which, of course, in this administration, we have no expectation of that. We assume we're always going to find out. And maybe this is just too big a deal. But I was like a little bit thinking, but, wouldn't it be better for everyone to save face here and pretend that that was an announcement that McGann was in on? And Well, yeah, but like so many of these things, and that's an interesting uh, thought, but like so many of these things, like the leak of the uh, woman in the press office whose name escapes me for the moment and what she said about John McCain. Right. I mean, there are people inside who, when these norms are broken, the norm that you let somebody know, even if you're going to even if you're gonna make the announcement 10 seconds later, five seconds later, you let them know at least beforehand right, although, if you have any respect for them. Yes, although Donald Trump does seem to be congenitally allergic to firing people in real life. Of course, the, the irony, given his TV role, like just that he's someone who doesn't want to confront mm-hmm. people in the moment. And that's well, he why could have somebody else like he did with Omarosa, have somebody else I, let him it's, know. But it's but it's so undignified. It's so yes. unworthy. This man yeah. is your White House counsel. He's a senior staffer. It's just absurd. Well, it's not only As somebody absurd, who but... like has had to fire people in my life. It is. It's like a. It's a sin to to like do it in some underhanded way or some way to, that avoids the the directly confronting it yourself. It's just yeah. pathetic. So there's that. Then the second thing is I think going back to Emily's good point about the judges. Um, you know, during the campaign, McGann was was who worked with Donald Trump on the campaign was wise enough to know of two things. One, that Donald Trump did not had a clean slate when it came to the question of judges and also knew that um, because of that clean slate, he could wire it in such a way that um, not only would Donald Trump create a connection to the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo, but that he would present a, a list of justices furthering that relationship between politics and the judiciary that we talked about last week and present that list of uh, justices to the world, get the validation then of the Federalist Society and the and conservative legal scholars who would say, if he picks anybody from this list, we're going to be in great shape. That was all during the election. And if we believe that that played a role in cementing a lot of people who were who were wobbly about Trump, as I believe, which we should. And as I believe, then McGahn is not just some dude who knows about the law. He's a guy who helped, uh, along with Mitch McConnell and his decision on Gorsuch, helped help a lot of people get to yes about Donald Trump because of this specific legal thing. And then just on the numbers, the uh, Senate Republicans have confirmed 60 judges to the courts this Congress, 33 district court judges, 26 appeal co- appeals court judges, and, of course, Gorsuch and probably Kavanaugh. So that's quite a record. And as we look at the Trump administration and the disconnect between the reality show and the reality, um, what's being done at the agencies, what's not being done, regulations that are being removed, judges has to be, maybe is arguably, the greatest uh, um, success, yes. success, juggernaut, accompli- set of accomplishments for the president, which don't get c- covered that much. And they are big and real and, and will affect people's lives uh, in a really big and substantive way, even though much of the public attention is often spent on, you know, the various flaps. Yeah. And one way that we should all think about that is that so far in the Trump administration, some of the biggest moments of um, refusing to go along with Trump administration excess have come from the judiciary. And so if you imagine a judiciary transformed and really different from the one we have now, you could imagine many fewer moments in which judges are resisting um, presidential power that's being expressed in like arbitrary, um, you know, rickety ways like we saw with the travel ban, the family separations. Judges have played really crucial roles in those moments. But we get it's because we get back to, again, the the big overarching issue of American politics, which is we have a legislative branch that doesn't function and doesn't exercise its role. 
Although, of course, for the people who are happy with those numbers that I just read to you earlier, not only is the the legislative branch is functioning perfectly, which is to say they're shuttling these judges through really quickly. And I mean, obviously, you want a legislative branch in which, you know, all voices are heard and things are adjudicated and all that. But for people who are of a of a certain political view that then it's working great. I don't I think it would be hard for any any Republican who actually believed in the Constitution or believed in the American system of government to say that the legislative branch is working really well. There's no yeah. regular order. There's no yeah. committee hearings. There's no serious legislation. There's no check on the president through legislation. I mean, it's that's you, yeah, you yeah, cited yeah, one yeah. example there. Yeah, but no, I, I know. You, but you know general. what I'm saying, yes. though, right? I mean, right. Well, if you think of it in the longer term, then the judges matter a great deal. And then you only change the dynamic um, when Congress changes, so, when and if so, Congress changes. Emily, let's turn actually to an interesting story in the Washington Post on Thursday, which made the case that that uh, using a Game of Thrones metaphor, which I don't dare repeat, uh, but the Game of Thrones metaphored it uh, and said essentially that the, the Trump White House is not prepared for what will happen when if, – if the House is taken by Democrats. And in particular, McGahn's departure means that the White House counsel's office is down – it will be down its counsel, but also – Four of the five deputy White House counsels are are gone. So there's only one, apparently only one deputy White House counsel who's in place. And they're about to be hit with just uh, a, if, if Democrats take the House, an absolute barrage, a storm of records requests, subpoenas, demands for documentation, um, which they're not ready for. And in, in investigations all across the board, not at all Russia related, they're Russia is a small fraction of it. There's so many different particular investigations that Democrats want to do and so much oversight that they want to engage in and the White House is not equipped for it. Does that um, – it, it, did that ring true to you? And also if that happens, how, if the White House is not in fact prepared, what, what, what will happen as a result? I mean I think – with these moments, it's all about who comes in next. But then when you also think about the churn in the Trump administration and, and the implications of being fired on Twitter, you wonder what quality of lawyer is going to want this job next. Now, I mean, Rudy Giuliani has been angling for it since the beginning. So there's that. But, you know, you also have people like Emmett Flood, who is the president's lawyer, who I would think is I would say is the least in the press. Um mouthing off, he seems to be in position for this too. So if you imagine that they can get someone really competent to bring in his or her people, then you feel like, okay, so you fill those deputy slots and they're months away from Congress actually changing hands. If in fact that happens, that's not a done deal. And they they have time to prepare for all of that. It's the question of like how they're going to get someone really good in there with really good people that seems like the the big unanswered one. Well, and also you could question whether having four out of five deputy White House counsel spots empty is a feature, not a bug, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say, oh, well, we can't repeat these requests. We'd li- we wish we could help, but, you know, it's just so much paperwork. And, and you know, they just slow walk the whole thing. The... um. I interviewed Lindsey Graham yesterday, and his response to McGahn was that uh, the president needs to hire somebody who who basically, this is my word, not his, needs to be ready to be on a war footing for when the House Democrats take over. And Trump will, it seems very fired up to take exactly that approach. Right. I mean, everything about Trump in the last few months suggests that he will be very comfortable in that mode, let, more comfortable. But if, if, let me ask this question of you, Emily. Sorry, David. Um, ethically. We talked about last week, you were uncomfortable, to whatever, two weeks ago, you were uncomfortable with the idea that McGahn testified for 30 hours because of his uh, ethical responsibilities to his client. Do, do those change now that he no longer works for the institution? That's a really good question. I was more uncomfortable given his responsibilities to the institution of the White House, although, of course— His client is the White House. There's a way to separate right, that where, from the person who yes, is the president. Yes, this is why like, I was that's so the problem. fascinated by that um, So, I mean, your responsibility is, as a lawyer, just like Ethics 101, continue after the representation. So, for example, attorney-client privilege doesn't end when you end the representation. Right. It goes, like, until death. So, in that sense— um, no, I don't think that the ethical calculation really changed for for him. That doesn't mean that the practical it's like, uh, right. calculation. So attorney-client privilege doesn't extend past death? 
it extends to the attorney's death. To the attorney's like, death, not yeah. to the client's oh, it death. Extends, the, yes, the client's death does not end. It. it goes on. Yeah. Basically, it's supposed to be forever. Yeah. I mean, the the cases that are interesting that touch on this is if you know that an innocent person is in prison and then your client dies, what do you do? Like that's a oh, real dilemma yeah. that you know plays out in law school classrooms and has happened a few times in um, our history. But now we're really off topic. No, no, but I'm 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 psyched we heard that. Um, so, in other words, the special counsel who's already had thirty hours of testimony with him is is not likely to get if the if he follows the ethical rules of the job is not likely to get a whole new bonanza of information. Yeah, I don't think that McGann leaving in sort of strict. Uh, by the book, ethical terms should matter in terms of what he tells Mueller. That doesn't mean that it won't, except that we think he already told Mueller a lot. Yeah, so it's already all scrambled. Well, and by simply giving Mueller a timeline of events, he may have told Mueller a lot because of the shifting nature of the story. But if 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 a, a Democratic House comes in and they subpoena, they issue a, a subpoena uh, demanding a set of records from the White House about, I can't think of unfortunately called to mind one emoluments? of the emoluments emoluments about tax yeah. returns yes de- de- yes demand information about the president's tax returns for the following reasons what happens well they have to i mean they have legal obligations to fill it i don't i'm sure the slow walking will happen because it's a good tactic but i don't think saying like we just don't have people in the in the sitting in the chairs will work. I mean, it's supposed to be a functional White House office, but I do think there's going to be a huge standoff and that who's ever there is going to be saying, no, 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 you can't have any of these documents in a forceful manner. The opposite approach from the president's personal lawyers in the beginning of the Mueller investigation. There's no chance the president will give up his tax returns without, I don't know, I mean, without the U.S. Marshals going and seizing them. Yeah, I right. think that's, I think that's, that's yeah. just right. All right, John, last question here. How does this affect the firing of Robert, Robert Mueller or of Jeff Sessions? Well, I think that it, it, to the extent that there has been this reporting that McGahn threatened to quit if the president fired Mueller, uh, then um, uh, some people think, well, now one of the breaks against the president's impulses is gone. Um, uh, and that may be so. Um you know, uh, Lindsey Graham yesterday, who is, you know, lots of people think Lindsey has gone to the dark side, but he basically said if the only way the president can get his way out of Mueller is if Mueller exonerates him. So he said basically if getting rid of McGahn is a way to fire Mueller, uh, then that'll be catastrophic for the for the White House. Doesn't mean the president won't do it or won't isn't trying to do that. But there are some voices who have been sympathetic to the president who think that would be um, a big mistake. But what is Lindsey Graham actually doing? I mean, maybe yeah. the answer to that is, well, he hasn't been totally pushed to the wall yet, so we don't know. But like, yeah, these sort point. of this whole Republican in Congress, yeah. well, that could never sure, happen. Sure. Line is very unsatisfying. No, that that's a super. That's a very good point. Um, we've seen a lot of um, talk, basically, about lines that shouldn't be crossed or whatever. And but that's all. That's very all. Little it's, action it's, yeah, that's when all. Lines so that's crossed. That's a super good point. Um, that's that's exactly right. I think Sessions, um, this doesn't matter with respect to Sessions because Sessions is a, basically a dead man walking. Um, and nobody seems, I mean, actually Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell did come and defend Sessions the other day. But this week, I mean, Graham, Corker, like six different senators were like, well, yeah, looks like it's, you know, he's going to be fired. Now, the question is, there was a, one of the, I can't remember whose story it was, but who said that, that the president's lawyers suggested that Sessions could not be that, that that he shouldn't fire him before Mueller's report because it would it would support the idea that it's obstruction of justice because uh, the president is is mostly upset the, uh, about the fact that Sessions couldn't get this uh, you know he recused himself and couldn't stop the special counsel so I I, I can't imagine he waits that long I think at, at the most he waits till the end of the election but he but he but firing Sessions at this point probably doesn't end the Mueller investigation. Well, it puts no. a new, but but a new attorney general is not recused, doesn't have a conflict. So it takes Rod Rosenstein out, presumably, as the supervisor of said investigation. And then if you have a lackey in the attorney general job, then presumably you change the parameters. You sort of quietly start undermining Mueller and trying to shut him down. I mean, that's the fear, right? Right. And, and it, to the extent that it gives support for the idea that he's trying to end the investigation, there may be previous testimony given by people like Don McGahn, who's, who might have been asked seven months ago when the president wanted to fire Jeff Sessions, what was the reason he gave? And McGahn might have said, well, the reason he gave is that Jeff Sessions had recused himself and he wanted the investigation ended. So who knows? 
Oh, my God. It's amazing that all the president's moves have to do with protecting himself and investigations of his own wrongdoing have nothing to do with public policy. That when you think about Jeff Sessions and Jeff Sessions Sessions and Don McGahn are the two most effective and and what's his name at EPA, the three most effective uh, members of the administration. You've forgotten Mm -hmm. Scott Pruitt's name? That's so quick. I hope to never hear it again. Right. No, but it is remarkable. I mean, Jeff Sessions, who is doing God's work from the point of view of conservatives on so many fronts in the law and has been effective in a lot of ways at pursuing those goals, has like turned into Trump's whipping boy. I mean, there's just uh, there's some just crazy, weird, like Greek tragedy element of that or farce. I'm not Uh, sure which. But I think you could. I think Jeff Sessions is the way I just tried to make McGahn a key player. I think, Jeff, the point you just both made is if you just think of the disconnect between policy and um, and personal impulse. Politics. Yeah. I mean, he is he is really doing the president's work as as much as possible and yet is still being uh, hung out to dry the way he is. All right. As you lucky Slate Plus members experience every week we create special bonus segments of the gabfest for slate plus listeners last week was an epic one it was well worth the price of admission which is for if first year of slate so yourself <laughs> for first year of slate plus membership is $35 that would people would pay $35 just to hear emily yelling back the fuck off plots or whatever <laughs> you said to me um so slate plus members you should uh, become a member or no, you already are members. But people who are not Slate Plus members, you should become members by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to get a bonus segment on the GabFest. And today's bonus segment is going to be, should you track your children on their phones? Should you spy digitally on them? We have differing points of view on that. So we'll look forward to talking about that in a few minutes. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A three-judge panel again ruled North Carolina's 2016 redrawn congressional map unconstitutional on, I think, First and 14th Amendment grounds. Maybe Emily will cite extra amendments that I've forgotten. <laughs> originally, that... I think you got them. Originally, that map... Uh, originally, a different map was tossed in 2011. That map, 2011 map, had impermissibly diluted black voting power. It had been created, the court said, with the idea of, of diluting African-American votes. Um, so in 2016... The North Carolina legislature, the Republican-controlled North Carolina le- legislature, drew a new map. This time, they said, we, we're not trying to dilute black votes. We're just trying to dilute Democratic votes. They came out and said it. The person who was in charge of it came straight out and said it. And he said, the only reason we created a 10, 10 Republican-leaning districts and three Democratic-leaning districts is that we couldn't figure out how to make it 11 and 2. So this is just the latest in a really remarkable and kind of appalling series of events in North Carolina, a purple state whose Republican legislature has engaged in a series of really demoralizing practices to undermine a Democratic governor, rig a Supreme Court race, rig the congressional districts. It's crazy. Um, But Emily, talk about the legal issues at play, the redistricting issues at play in the North Carolina case, because it's the latest in what seems like an inordinate number of these cases around the country. 
Well, so this is a ruling from a three-judge panel, and it was a remarkable statement about the problems, and in the view of this court, the constitutional problems with partisan gerrymandering. So to back up for a minute, in defense of the North Carolina legislature who, you know, said, yes, yes, we're trying to reduce Democratic power to as few seats as possible— When he said that, he would have had every reason to think that it was perfectly legal what he was doing because the Supreme Court has never rejected a redistricting map because of partisan gerrymandering. The court has not been in that business, has not let lower courts do um, that regulating of how states draw maps. So that's why you have these statements on the record from people admitting that that was the basis of the map. And can I just read one for you? Representative David Lewis justified the map by saying, I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats. So I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country. Yeah, that's why David Lewis is on the record in the way that he is and is now being mocked. But in fact, legally speaking, he was on solid enough ground when he said all of that. Now, is that a good idea? I mean, I don't think so. And I think this three-judge panel opinion does an excellent job of laying out the problems from the point of view of both, you know, equal protection under the law of different voters and also freedom of association. The problem with partisan gerrymandering is that you're punishing people for their political views and distorting and warping representation um, in a way that, you know, depresses the electorate, makes people feel like the system is rigged because, in fact, it is rigged. So that's the kind of underlying set of issues. Can I ask, what is the conservative case for not punishing states that gerrymand for partisan reasons? Well, so first of all, it's not clear at all from the Constitution that judges have the power to intervene. So when you look at the redistricting clause in the Constitution, it gives that power to state legislatures, mentions Congress, doesn't mention the judiciary. So the originalist argument from Justice Scalia when he was alive was that there's just no role for courts to play here. And if states have a problem with this, they need to change the process themselves, Um, i.e., pass a law or a ballot initiative um, allowing for a nonpartisan independent redistricting commission. And in fact, those ballot initiatives are um, on the ballot in five states um, this November. So there is an alternate remedy. But the idea that the courts have no role to play at all is extremely frustrating to people who are just like watching our political process um, become so distorted and twisted through gerrymandering. And so you see that frustration and the sense that the Constitution should forbid this from these judges. And now, you know, so the backdrop for this, David, as you were laying out, is that North Carolina, all kinds of chicanery has been going on. I mean, remember, this is also the state which in around 2011 passed this law that had really restrictive voter ID and took away early voting days. And the Fourth Circuit, the Court of Appeals, said that it was targeting African-American voters with surgical precision. So you've got a lot of bad juju going on with voting rights. You also have a governor where the le- the Democratic governor and the legislature is trying to strip him of his power to make judicial appointments and put people on elections boards. And then there was this whole mess of trying to just change the structure of the county election boards so that they would very much favor Republicans. All this like basically just tinkering or messing with the chicanery was good you like that yeah. yeah all this messing with the kind of structure of the democracy in a way that makes north carolina state government start to look like it really is just about preserving republican power all of that said and i wonder what you think about this it is the very end of august these elections are supposed to happen in november they have been Congress in North Carolina has been elected in this heavily favoring Republican candidates way with this map since 2011. So this would be the, what, fourth election with this messed up set of maps or a messed up set of congressional maps. And yet... Is there enough time between now and November to fix this plausibly? Come up with a new nap? What happens to primaries? They've already had the primaries. They already did the primaries. And I mean, one idea out there is like you rehold the primaries on November 6th, general election day, and then you have a December election to see. Which means the entire control of the House could be hanging in the balance in North Carolina. Right. I mean, another option is look, it's. 
drawing these maps on a computer, you can come up with thousands of options quickly. Mm -hmm. It's not like it takes weeks of preparation. Making the choice might be hard, but, you know, the judge is supposed to hear from the parties by the end of August, i.e. tomorrow, about what they think should happen next. And these judges could order um, the legislature to come up with new maps in a few weeks and tell the legislature that if it can't do it, well, then the court's going to take over. And that's essentially what happened in Pennsylvania under a different set of time pressures because it was before the primary. And we'll um, this, so we'll see. Will this make it all the way to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. I mean, the North Carolina Republicans have every incentive to take to the, mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court, but there's this wrinkle at the Supreme Court, which is that it is 4-4 at the moment. Right. And when there's a tie, the uh, the lower court ruling is upheld, meaning the ruling striking down the maps. Brett Kavanaugh, even if he's confirmed quickly, is not going to get seated right. in time, probably, to affect this vote. And so the Supreme Court is not the refuge at the moment for right. the Republicans that they would otherwise hope. Could, though, all right, so let's imagine there's some solution to the this particular election but it ultimately gets to the supreme court when kavanaugh is seated that'll be that right because kavanaugh there'll be a five four with the conservatives do you mean after november after november are you okay so you're imagining a world in which the maps get redrawn maps get redrawn some more democrats get elected in north carolina and then then the supreme court uh knocks down the lower court ruling and the maps get to be unredrawn. Well, the thing about the maps, though, I guess they matter for 2020 because that's before the next census. So, right. yes, there is one more drawing of the maps. But once you have water under the bridge, yeah. all those actions take place. I think it's a little harder to undo. For the conserv- exactly. And yet chicanery Beauregard, who was a famous North Carolina uh, uh, Civil War general. They've uh, torn down statues of him. Yeah, um, uh, chicanery abounding. Presumably, they could. There would be more efforts to try to fix that. We're we're pretty far down the hypothetical lane here, but it's um, <laughs> it is it is tantalizing though but, to walk down. But Emily, you, but on that larger Supreme Court point, there's given who Kavanaugh is and his record, there is no chance that he becomes a fifth vote in, to get rid of partisan gerrymandering. The, the, I don't the think so. I mean, issue is probably yeah, on the other side. It seems super impossible. I mean, look, Justice Kennedy, who had like opened the door to find me a method for <laughs> ruling against, uh, for find me a method for striking down extreme partisan gerrymandering. Back, he he opened that door like twelve years ago, and he backed away from it this spring. Kavanaugh's uh, one voting decision that I know about was to uphold um, the South Carolina law that the Obama Justice Department wanted to strike down for being racially discriminatory. So what we know about his record suggests he is a safe vote um, for not involving courts in policing gerrymandering. I I mean, just a couple of quick points. One is that just I want to align myself with the man. This is a short timeline. It it would require an extraordinary series of events. You have to print. You have to just brief it. You have to decide on new maps. You have to print new ballots. You've got to get the ballots out to the absentee voters, which is always a huge delay. You have to make a decision about the primaries, like who, what, have people, if you've won a primary in a district, which has now been totally redrawn, did you win that primary? Um, it's just a mess. It does seem implausible. But the other point I want to make is, is obviously what has been going on in states like um, Pennsylvania or North Carolina, Wisconsin, and other places, Maryland, where there's been a huge amount of gerrymandering is demoralizing. But it's also kind of true that we've gerrymandered ourselves and you're talking now about the big story. Yeah, the, the big story. People... I mean, like is, what's what's remarkable in this country is how how partisan individual states have become for the most part, that most states are now pretty safely one or the other. And that that even geographically, natural congressional districts are pretty much very well sorted themselves also. That if you think about, you know, if you if you think about uh, how you would draw not not if you drew it in squares. But if you sort of said, okay, this is a natural region which someone should represent, the city of New Haven, where you live. The city of New Haven city is probably. New Haven is one congressional. Yeah, it's like probably 90% Democratic. And, right. And I mean, it goes out. Our district goes out. But so, I mean, look, it is absolutely true that the fact that Democratic voters more and more tend to cluster in urban areas has had an effect on the composition of Congress. It is also true that gerrymandering in extreme partisan fashion is a separate problem. Yeah, no, no, it, mm-hmm. of course. Of course it is. But it, it, and, it, and one final point on this, actually, and either one of you, I'm interested in your theory. So they I just did some quick back of the envelope math um, on this. So as I understand it, North Carolina drew these districts basically so you draw districts that were 80, 90 percent Democratic 
uh, three districts that were sort of 80 or 90 percent Democratic and then 10 districts that are sort of 60 percent Republican. Yep. Um, yeah. It seems to me that in a, a wave election, those 60 percent Republican districts, there's a bunch of those that could be in serious mm-hmm. trouble. Right. Well, there's been some discussion of that, that some of the Democratic candidates in districts that are not like uber, uber red are saying, wait a second, I'm not sure that in this particular race, I want you to change my map. Right, right, right. Yes, that's why it's it's complicated. All right, finally, um, Emily, just how does this all fit into the fight that is a, several generations old, which is the desire to have, in particular, have African-Americans have representation by African-American legislators, in which it led to the drawing of majority minority districts across the South in particular, um, and has been crucial to the to maintaining representation by African-Americans in Congress. Right. So past generations, for example, of the Congressional Black Caucus wanted districts drawn so that minority voters could um, have a real shot at voting in the candidate of their choice. Didn't necessarily have to be a black representative or a Hispanic representative in other parts of the country, but it could be. And it has been important. It also meant that um, recently the Democratic Party has not had white Democratic candidates in Congress from the South. So and also that if you looked statewide, you were actually reducing the power of minority voters because they were also concentrated in electing their very small number of representatives. They couldn't influence other elections. So in the last, I would say, 10 years, eight years, the Democrats have really shifted in their legal and political positioning on this topic. And so that's where you see candidates like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Andrew Gillum, the um, Democratic nominee for governor in Florida saying that they want to prove they can have statewide appeal by representing coalitions because they want to be more broadly um, attractive to the to funders, to Democratic voters. They want to show that um, you can be a minority candidate and get lots of white votes and build a liberal coalition that way. And so I think what you're seeing is like in tandem, that movement um, to change the face of the Democratic Party also playing out in these redistricting fights where Democrats are now saying we don't want 80 percent Dem. We don't even want 60 percent. And there's some pretty good political science showing that the um, penalty that minority candidates have paid in the past where like, you know, you could go to a place and show that John Kerry got. 50% of the vote of the white vote, but Barack Obama only got 40%, something like that. There were a lot of efforts to use those kinds of comparisons to try to show essentially what the tax for being a black or Latino candidate would be. In some parts of the country, that tax is going away or it's much lower, at least, than it used to be. And so the Democratic legal argument is, well, in light of that social science, it's we're it's consistent or at least like a good reading of the Voting Rights Act, what we need here is enough um, composition of um, the vote of the electorate to have a plausible chance, but we don't need to pack the voters in the way we used to. All right, let's turn to our last topic. John McCain's body will lie in state in the Capitol this weekend. The 81-year-old senator and Republican presidential candidate died this week. His life has been much commemorated. I know that John Dickerson, you have spent a bunch of time this week talking about him and interviewing people about him. He's been well remembered for his his desire to make fun of himself, his willingness to reconsider ideas, his volcanic temper, his sense of obligation and service, his great heroism as a as a prisoner of war, and his interesting political career, which which was all over the map, which had elements of conservatism, liberalism, iconoclasm, some great choices, some bad choices. Let's not, um, I don't know. We can spend as much time as you guys want to. Well, I would like to ask John what is going to stay with him after, you know, having a long relationship with McCain personally and then being through this week of thinking about it a lot. It's a good question. Yeah, because he was obviously an incredibly complicated guy. He supported things that were policies that were, 
in some senses, you know, he fought his party on tobacco legislation to get tobacco advertising away from young kids and to um, and to uh, squeeze the pernicious role of money in politics. Um, and the tobacco bill died. He was successful with McCain-Feingold until the courts basically uh, unwound most of it, right? Um, and... Um, and you can debate about um, whether McCain-Feingold itself was the right tool, but having covered people in politics for as many years as I have, the power of people with money to influence their behavior on legislation is impossible to refute. And it is such a lock. It's um, So anybody who, who fought his party, and remember that in, in 2000, what he did was he ran against his entire party and the establishment of the party saying that they were all corrupt because of their relationship with money. Now, this is where it which gets it to some of his complexity. Where did his inspiration for that come? From his own singeing as a part of the Keating Five. Now, he was not of the five. He, you can make the case, was kind of the the least involved, and there were... Um, well, he wasn't quid pro quoing. Exactly. He wasn't. <laughs> and he was doing, basically, and this was his argument, I mean, he so he took some... Uh, he got some uh, free flights from a donor, and all of which was legal, but... You know, as he used to argue, the the legal things are the ones that you that should be illegal. Wouldn't come out against the um, uh, the Confederate flag in South Carolina during the primary in two thousand. Then, after he lost, came back and said, "You know, that was wrong." And I, I um, chose I did. Sarah Palin. Said, "You know, that was a mistake." Yeah, although he still never <laughs> no. quite. But no, he oh, said okay. I should have picked Lieberman. Um, I think so. That's you know, that's the whole big kind of public thing. I think what stuck with me is a number of the smaller stories that of things he did in his life to people both known and unknown. The Mo Udall story is, I know, one of your favorites, David, which Michael Lewis chronicled so nicely. Mo Udall, a Democratic congressman who took McCain under his wing when he first came to Congress after he had Parkinson's and was in a veterans hospital and was, you know, had wasn't getting a lot of people coming to see him. John McCain made regular visits to go talk to Mo Udall, who by the time he was near death, was not, had no idea John McCain was there, but he kept, he kept going. And Lewis wrote about that, but I heard about it at the time when I was doing my reporting on McCain back in 99. Jay Coop, who was a, uh, who was in the Navy for most of his, uh, well, for his, a lot, years and years, I can't, I don't know how many, but he was the, he was the one who met McCain when he came off the boat, um, from, after being released from Hanoi, uh, McCain didn't remember who he was, but Coop his whole life, he's in the he's the guy with the mustache in the pictures of McCain. When McCain heard that he was dying and was in hospice, uh, called him and uh, and just sort of bucked him up at the at, right there at the end of his life, which nobody ever knew. Um, and I only know about it because I knew Jay Coop. Um, lots of those stories have come out this week. Um, and so uh, there is the complex public life. Um, there are also lots of stories of him being bitter and petty and not and ref- he wouldn't shake Duncan Hunter's hand, I don't think for the most of his uh, of his life. Phil Graham, who went and supported George W. Bush after McCain was, the chairman, I think, of Graham's campaign took a long time to repair that. Uh, so I'm not saying he was a saint by any means, but I think at the end of your life, you want to have enough of those stories that people come forward and say, you know, here's a story you've never heard about him doing something to make someone else feel uh, better and, you know, improve the lives of someone. He, so he uh, – my feeling about McCain is that he was obviously a great man and a great human being and and the stories that you – mentioned there, John, I think affirm his his really incredible human qualities and everything that happened to him in Vietnam, affirm it. Was he important? Is there a McCainism? Is there, does he leave a political legacy, Emily? I mean, I think that's complicated too. On the one hand, the contrast he provides to President Trump is stark and important right now. And his farewell statement was full of the idea of unity um, and against tribalism, which is not the direction that Trump's Republican Party is going in whatsoever. And that's important. And yet I also feel like it's important to remember that Yes, McCain voted to hang on to the Affordable Care Act, but then turned around and voted for the um, tax cuts that did a lot of the damage to the Affordable Care Act and to Obamacare that um, he had previously 
fended off. He also voted for Trump's judicial appointments. There are a lot of ways in which he remained very much a loyal Republican soldier in the Senate, even when rhetorically he was providing a real um, alternative to Trumpism. So again, like it's just complicated. Yeah. I do think the metaphor I think about with McCain a lot is that he's a huge boxing fan. The one time I met him, (laughs) I was interviewing him about ultimate fighting, which he hated. And we got into a big squabble about it. Um, And he, but, but boxing is, is guided by these rules, the Marcus of Queensberry rules, which are, which are rules about sort of gentlemanly behavior within the context of beating somebody in a boxing match. And I always felt like that is a real metaphor for how McCain acted in the world, which is that he he fundamentally thought there was gent- that you that there was gentlemanly behavior and honor in the fight, even though he himself had been as a victim of torture, like people who were not fighting fair, or not treating him with honor, but that he he was going to w- act with integrity, even in times when you were in conflict with other people. And I think that's a like a very admirable and noble and like very lost kind of uh tradition in america i thought politics. the boxing story you were going to say was the one i always uh, mention which is when he was at the naval academy and he was boxing his um his strategy was he would basically run into the middle of the, the ring and just start throwing punches uh which is very which sort of um typifies the way he approached some legislation um and uh, and some of the political fights he got in um you know it wasn't exactly uh, there was a lot of flurry and fury in, when he did that. Uh, to me, McCain's absolute um, standing against torture was the most just principled thing about him, that that was a line that it didn't matter how much President Bush was going to appeal to him to cross it after 9-11. McCain just stood there and... Um, had an enormous impact by refusing to recognize any kinds of gray areas or compromise as far as I can tell. And maybe it's because obviously like you see the horror of having the lines um, wash away in the sand. You experience that personally. And so then in that context, you hang on to them. Let me ask you this question, which is um, at a time where there is some debate, particularly within his own party, about whether America is an idea or an Ameri- or America is a geographical place and with a specific kind of uh, um, lineage, somebody who believed that America was an idea, which to his critics was a disaster because it believed that it meant that America wouldn't depress its idea on other places where he thought human rights were at stake and that meant military intervention. Yeah, so for the, the breathless support for the Iraq war. Right. For so example. for his, his critics, the idea that he supported, which is the idea that people should be free and that America should go and intervene in the service of that idea is obviously one of their, if not their biggest critique against him. And yet in the moment, when he is speaking out against what he calls the spurious, the spurious nationalism, he is arguing America is an idea. It is not a place. It is not a, a land of blood and soil. Um, so how do you uh, – is there a place for the virulent McCain critics on policy grounds to nevertheless support his affirmation in all that he did uh, of the idea that America is a set of ideas and not something that you get just because you were born here? Yes, there is. That's I certainly that that is my belief. That is what I want. Even as somebody who's become increasingly skeptical of American military intervention, I would so much rather have that sense of what America is than the than the blood and soil sense of it. The blood and soil sense of it is is sick and narrow and vicious and and also creates a worse world. Clearly, creates a worse world. There are huge problems with the McCain you know, project power, uh, invade everybody, uh, let's attack Iran mode of it. But, you know, if you forced me to pick one of them, I would much, much rather have a an America that is too ambitious and too idealistic abroad than one that is that is isolationist and narrow and and shuts itself off. I think you could also argue 
yes, America is an idea. Now let's fight over what that idea is. And let's have an idea that actually like helps or at least is available and accessible to all Americans. I mean, there's always the struggle for me in understanding what the idea is if it doesn't translate into policies that make lots of people's lives better. And I think the the potential power of of the idea, and this is now I'm slipping and changing that to really mean norms. I think, you know, uh, a lot this week people have been talking about his concession speech in 2008 to President Obama and the time at the Al Smith dinner during the campaign in which, again, we're measuring moral distance here of the moment where you have the the president who's in office now was for five years America's chief birther. And you have McCain when he was running for president at the Al Smith dinner um, when when Obama's there in the audience um, praising him while he's in the middle of a political fight against him, praising him for his good qualities. And then in his concession speech, trying to create because he was trying to live up to his notion of an idea of what a good loser is, back to your boxing metaphor, David, you know, trying to deliver a speech that um, that praised Obama and set the conditions for a kind of coming back together. Um, and I, that's all based around this notion of an idea of the uh, of how you're supposed to behave, which we which is, um, you know, very much up for grabs in, in parts of our political right, life right now. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are having a uh, extremely delicious shrub. As my wife had the other night. Wait, what? A shrub? A shrub. Hannah drank a shrub? Yes. Do you know what a shrub is? No. Oh, a shrub is like a vinegary, uh, it's a vinegary drink, but you can mix it with alcohol. I think it's, the shrub itself is called, even when it's non-alcoholic, and then if you mix it with alcohol, it's still called a shrub. Um, Okay. So I think she had a, a gin, she had it with gin. I prefer it with vodka because I don't. But she really wasn't like drinking a bush. She was not drinking a bush. She was having a shrub, a very vinegary, but fruity shrub. When you're having that, Emily, what will you be chattering about? If you if you ever get the lucky chance to have a shrub, <laughs> I know I'll I'll have to wait for that. Um, along with my oat milk, which has not arrived in New Haven yet. So. California ended cash bail um, this week, which is a big deal and means uprooting the bail industry. And yet um, a lot of civil rights groups um, that had fought hard for bail reform in California ended up opposing this bill and feeling very concerned about what the implications are going to be. And the reason is that Along the way to gathering enough votes to pass, according to its sponsors, the bill created um, much more room for judges to put people in preventative detention. In other words, you get arrested, the prosecutors say that you're a danger, you're no longer going to have to, you know, find the money for some really high bail as the way of presumably keeping you locked up um, before trial. The judge is going to be able to say, like, you're a risk, and so we're keeping you for that reason. And I just have no idea, I mean, no one does, of whether the fears about this um, new regime in California are going to be realized or not. And part of the reason is that California is also waiting for a ruling from its Supreme Court about the constitutionality of bail. And the court could limit the categories of people who are um, eligible for preventive detention in a way that would, I think, take away a lot of the sting, the potential sting of this of this new um, way of approaching where people end up before their trials. So they're just all these unresolved questions. But for me, the thing that I keep coming back to is that it's become really clear to me in my reporting that eliminating cash bail is like absolutely what we should do in this country. For-profit bail is just a scourge on the nation. And yet figuring out what's going to replace it for people accused of felonies and violent felonies is not obvious. Like there are various ways that um, the state can deal with those situations. You know, in my view, you want to be detaining as few people as possible when they're presumed innocent. New Jersey's reforms are a lot of interest to me. They've been operating for a while. New Jersey just is a different animal from California. Um, It was much more orderly and um, unified in its approach to getting rid of cash bail. Um, California went in this other direction. From the point of view of the laboratory of democracy or just a journalist observing, it's good news to have lots of different models. But I just don't know what to make of this bill in California yet. You can make a hat. (laughs) You can make a brooch. (laughs) Uh, 
John, what is your chatter? Well, my uh, chatter is I went down, I was in South Bend, Indiana on Monday interviewing former President Jimmy Carter, which was a joy. He was, um, it's amazing what he has done with Habitat for Humanity. And then what they do in South Bend, they built 41 houses. This army of volunteers arrived, 1,700 of them. And when you stand among them while they're in the middle of one of these builds, it's the constant sound of hammering. It's just this beautiful symphony of all of this incredibly productive work and hearing the stories of the families who'd put all the work into their own is amazing. It's amazing. Anyway, I interviewed the president about that, but I asked him a lot of other questions, including, and we talked in the in the show about um, sort of the distance, the moral distance we travel and norms shift and norms change and and so, but one that I was thinking about when I met uh, up with him was um, uh, right before his debate against Gerald Ford in 1976, Carter was taking a train ride to the um, to the debate and um, all the reporters were in one place and they were all handed by the, by the campaign an interview that he had done with Playboy magazine. He said that he had lusted in his heart about other women. This caused an uproar, a flap. It was on the eve of the debate, many people thought going to torpedo his candidacy. And I, so I was just thinking about what causes a president to flap. Now, in this case, he was a he was a candidate. But the kinds of things in public life that get you in trouble. He And so I asked him about this. Um, and uh, and he said uh, he said this in response. I asked him to reflect back on that Playboy interview moment that had been such a big deal at the time with respect to um, our current uh, things in the current light. He did not decide to make any contemporary comparisons, but he did say this. I lost 15 percentage points in the public opinion polls overnight. So just that's 15 points for. And he said, all I did actually was quote the Bible precisely because I just quote, quoted Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount talks about um, lusting in your in your heart, and so he's right. Carter says, unfortunately, it was either deliberately or inadvertently misinterpreted by Playboy magazine. I quoted the Bible to, you know, the wrong destination. <laughs> so anyway, as you're thinking about how the presidency has evolved and the role of character and sexual peccadilloes, it was once a flap to accurately quote the Bible about not actual adultery, not paying hush money for alleged adultery, but simply having the thought of adultery in your head. Wow. All right. Uh, my chatter. Uh, I'll just do – we didn't get the chance to talk about the absolutely astonishing, appalling story in the Washington Post. Um, I suspect will become a bigger story over the course of the week. The news that the United States is – moving to deny passports to American citizens who live on the border, people mostly of uh, Mexican descent who live in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, live near the border, were born in the United States, have American birth certificates. And the U.S. is saying when they apply for passports, well, we don't think your birth certificate is legit. People who have served in the U.S. military, people who have you know raised families here, it's a pretty shocking example of fascism on the creep. It's, it is a policy that the Obama administration started. The Trump administration is massively accelerating. So it's this is not something which Trump invented. It's it's a bad situation. I'm so glad I was thinking of chattering about that. I'm really glad you brought it up. Yeah. I mean, we sh- I'm sure we'll end up. I, I suspect this is a story that will have legs because it's, it's disturbing. My actual chatter is a, another Washington Post story about something called Epic Nerd Camp, which is a adult camp. I mean, I'm always suspicious of adult camps, truthfully. I find them a little bit odd but uh epic nerd camp just seems really nice it's a chance for people to do live action role-playing role-playing games cosplay wand making sword fighting quidditch wizarding make fx makeup it's as the post describes it it's like burning nerd uh and it just was a lovely story about people who have interests that are somewhat offbeat interests and finding each other and getting a chance to spend four days uh in the woods with no judgment and a lot of joy. So uh, check out the the story on Epic Nerd Camp. Is, is it um, so? It's it's in the woods and it's kind of fantasy, the sort of Dungeons and Dragons slash Harry Potter slash Tolkien, or lots of different subcultures. So some okay. of this, there's some there's definitely Tolkien. There's definitely Harry Potter. There's some Star Trek people. There's Star Wars people. There's D and D people. So there's a, there's a lot of different stuff. 
Nice. It's all all um, all the universes married together. Yeah, uh, that's good. And then listener chatters, listeners, you continue to bring to bring the hammer every week with great chatters. Thank you. Please keep them coming. Tweeted us at, at @slategabfest with something you think would be a great chatter, or you, you're going to be chattering about at your cocktail party this weekend. And Mitch Robertson, you sent us at, at Mitch underscore Robertson. You sent us a fantastic story from the Daily Beast about how the McDonald's Monopoly competition, the game that that uh, Monopoly that McDonald's had, and where you would gather pieces and and you know if you had Park Place and Broadway, you would win a million dollars. How it was completely rigged by one guy who was working for the company that printed the pieces, and he he oh no, it was an incredible story. And he, basically, all the prizes were run by people he was connected to, and he found he found a way to cheat it. And it was it's just an amazing story about something that was was just a sham, and McDonald's didn't know it. McDonald's had no idea that it was being duped, and it took a great FBI investigation. And one of the reasons why no one ever heard this story or told it is that it all broke on September tenth. 2001 oh so everything all the news about it happened in the shadow of 9-11 so nobody paid any attention but it's a wonderful story so in the daily beast on the mcdonald's monopoly competition great story that's our show for today the gabbits is produced by jocelyn frank our researcher is izzy road follow us on twitter at at slate gabfest for emily basil and john dickerson i'm david plotz thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week 